dangerously close. This episode was brought to you by William Mitchell Audio. And this episode deals with some pretty serious subject matter regarding Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper has been described as evil, awful, and fiendish. However, none of these words describe William Mitchell Audio. William Mitchell Audio is typically described as wonderful, professional, and dependable as well as a myriad of other positive adjectives. So, next time you're looking for an audio engineering company that is the best of the best, go to williammitchellaudio.com. My guest today is M.P. Priestley. M.P. Priestley is the award-winning author of Jack the Ripper, One Autumn in Whitechapel, the definitive account of the Whitechapel murders case. Living in London's East End and with a lifelong fascination with true crime and serial killers, Mick has spoken at numerous crime conventions, appeared on CNN, CBS, the TYT Network, and the BBC, and also guides the Jack the Ripper walking tours in Whitechapel. What's up, Mick? I'm all good. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm doing fantastic. Other than what we were just <laughs> talking about a minute ago where I woke up with the sniffles and I thought I had possibly finally caught covid because it's gotten to the point now where just about everybody i mean on any given week i know personally three people that have it it's reaching that point i get messages i think i've got it now it's reaching that point as, yeah as long as everybody gets that injection he needs to hurry up with the injections <laughs> I, it's it's chaos over here man but i hope you guys are doing better over there it's okay it's okay slowly getting back to normal uh definitely we're here to talk about uh your book, One Ottoman Whitechapel, mostly, man. Uh, and I just finished reading your book yesterday. And it's a fascinating book. And I just, just to clarify why um, One Ottoman Whitechapel stands out as the definitive account of the Whitechapel murders, aka the Jack the Ripper murders, is that it took you about three and a half years to research and write this book. And that becomes very evident while reading the book that it would take at least that long with the level of depth and detail you provide. And it would seem that uh, several previous accounts of the history of these murders were sensationalized. And uh, just right off the top, who are some of the people that have been accused of being Jack the Ripper throughout history that you find unlikely? Um, I, th I think the most common one, whenever you watch the movies, is, is the royal family connection. Whenever you watch the movies, there's always a royal family conspiracy going on. Nobody said any of that at the time. Oh, it's, it's kind of become two Jack the Rippers now. You've got the actual Jack the Ripper from back in the day, and then with the amount of movies that have been made in the TV series, now there's the Hollywood Jack the Ripper as well. And if they went with the Hollywood Jack the Ripper with his top hat and his cape and his doctor's bag, and that's how people see him. And usually people go, oh, he was the, the royal doctor, or he was that famous painter, or he was whoever. And the, the, the police at the time said they believed that it was a local man living in the immediate area and that was that. But in the time since then, people have made up all this nonsense about him. So you've got the royal family. Uh, the elephant man has been accused of being uh, Jack Ripper <laughs> at one point. I've heard that. He only lived uh, in the middle of Whitechapel at the time. It, everybody, everybody that was alive in 1888 has pretty much been named as Jack Ripper. The vast majority of them are stupid. Lewis Carroll, 
uh, wrote Alice in Wonderland. He's been accused of being Jack the Ripper. Wow. But, uh, <laughs> a, pretty much everybody that was alive, if you'd been alive in 1888 and they haven't named you yet, you, you should have probably got out more, I think. It's interesting that, uh, what you just said about the, Holly, the Hollywoodification of, of Jack the Ripper's image, mm-hmm. because before reading your book, exactly what you just said is uh, my, the way I envisioned Jack the Ripper was a man in a top hat with a mm-hmm. cape, with a cane, mm-hmm. and he was rich. And, mm-hmm. and I, uh, but mysteriously lives in the slums for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing that's, that was so interesting about the book is like, because you know, you, what you did is you took a lot of like modern, like how, how a modern forensics uh, and investigators would do now and, and say, well, this is, there's clearly evidence that he lives in this neighborhood where the murders are occurring mm-hmm. rather than some very wealthy aristocrat traveling all the way to this area, being able to commit these crimes and then escape back to yeah. wherever he may have come from. And that's, is very uh, unlikely. If, if they'd never caught Ted Bundy or Peter Sutcliffe or whoever, by now they would make up all these stories about him. Oh, he, he was like this and I bet he was like that and I bet he was like this. But when you see this guy, there's nothing fancy about this guy. Every yeah. time you catch the serial killer, it's that creepy pervert lives. And this is exactly the same, but because they never caught him, it's become like this larger than life thing. I always think if you went back in time and you grabbed him and it was really him, he'd be a big disappointment. He's, he's this nobody pervert living in the area like, like Ted Bundy or Sutcliffe or Jeffrey Dahmer or whoever. But people, yeah. for some reason, seem to view the Jack the Ripper case a different way. So I think, I think that's why it was important to me to put all that detail in there to remind people this is what actually happened here. There's no... Yeah, there's no um, magical conspiracy series going on. Yeah, it's, it's, like a, it's serial, it, it, he's like Ted Bundy, but ninety years before. Like a, if it was <clears throat> like John Wayne Gacy, like no big surprise. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but if they never caught him, if they never caught him by now, oh, but he was like this and like that. And then when you see him, he'd be a big disappointment. And it's uh, yeah, Jack the Ripper. He was he was the police believed it was a local man in the in the immediate Whitechapel area. And they think he was still drinking in the local pubs, which would cause about midnight, half past midnight. Then, when he's got a buzz going, he takes the scenic route home. So, you know, he lives immediately in the area, but he's walking around. So he doesn't do a murder every night, but if he, if he doesn't see an opportunity, he'll go home. But he's out there walking regularly. You yeah. see, and then if he does see an opportunity, he does the deed, runs like hell, and he lives two minutes away. So by the time you find the body in five minutes' time, he's back in the living room. And, and that's, that's how we would get away with it. And that's what the police thought then. And, that just seems to have been distorted in the last hundred years. But it also explains the the ability to vanish, you know, so supposedly yes. that he's not he's not Dracula. He's not like committing nope. a, a murder and then turning into a bat and flying away. He nope. just it's lives a man around. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And like you said, I, I, when you were talking, I mean, using using more modern terminology, but I think at the time, I, actually, I was I was very very surprised. I, I feel like I learned a lot reading this about actually the capabilities of the uh, detectives or I guess inspectors is what you guys call mm-hmm. them uh, at that time. Uh, detectives or inspectors, yeah. Okay. Investigators, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. pretty much the same. Yeah. I, mean, I, was, I was very impressed with the ability of the coroners and the investigators to actually come to so many conclusions that they, they did come to. I thought a lot of that was more modern. I really did. Yeah. As far as profiling. Uh, and, uh, wasn't, uh, when, when, when you read like a lot of the old files, like a, a lot of the doctors, I mean, you read some reports and there were, you know, this was obviously a Victorian man writing this, but the idea that, you know, everybody in Victorian London ran around scratching their heads and couldn't understand what was going on isn't accurate either. You read some reports and 
Um, yeah, I mean, some of them you read, you think these people are ahead of the time, especially some of the doctors. Um, a lot of things you'd be looking for in a case today, these guys were looking for then, even if it wasn't understood as much, but a lot of them were definitely ahead of the time uh, for Victorian doctors. And, yeah, and so many of the points they made, they're like uh, the the nature of the murders because they're so brutal and they're also very spontaneous when they do happen. Mm-hmm. And they're like, he's a disorganized killer, uh, mm-hmm. but there is a premeditation. And so they call him mm-hmm. a mixed killer. And they had all that information yeah. at that time to be able to make those kind of judgments and also to say... I, I think some of, some of those exact terms wouldn't use, but I think there were... Uh, yeah, like I think when people seem to think that in Victoria, because it wasn't that long ago in the grand scheme yeah. of things, I think uh, it's only in the last ten years we lost the first guys from the first world, the last guys from the first world war. I mean, they were all uh, Victorian men. So a lot of the guys who are on the case. Yeah, it's, it's like, um, I was talking to somebody the other day, and I said, well, when uh, as an example, when Catherine Eddowes was found in Mitre Square, and the doctor's report talks about he found no secretion of any kind at the scene, and you know he's, he's clearly looking for a sexual motive here. And this is 1888, and you think yeah. the fact that he's at the crime scene and these are the things that he's looking for. It, 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 it's uh, almost a very modern way of investigating it, but this was in the 1880s. Yeah, that's uh, another thing that I thought was incredible is they were able to like identify that these murders were sexually motivated, even though mm-hmm. sex was no, there was no sexual like traditional sexual encounter. It was just yes. a murder, but but for him, it's a sexual uh, yeah. mo- sexually motivated crime. Oh, absolutely. You know, he's killing all women. That, that, would be the, that would be the first clue. If it was a gay man like Jeffrey Dahmer or Randy Kraft or something, you expect men to turn up everywhere. All the women he's killing are about the same age, are about the same height, they're all dressed in black. As we call a victim profile today. So he, he's, he's acting on a fantasy that he has in his head. So when he's going out and he's meeting these women in the street, he's meeting them by uh, a chance and by random, but he waits until somebody fitting that impression, fitting that image and fitting the fantasy in his head comes along. If you see Ted Bundy's victims, they all look real similar. You know, they're all like um, thin white women with a long dark hair in the middle. And he, he didn't know them when he met them, but he meets them by, by chance. He goes, he's looking for people that fit that particular kind of image. That's what he's going to get the most excitement out of. And Jack the Ripper would appear to be the same. But 130 years before, but for some reason, instead of those college girls, he likes 45-year-old women dressed in black who are five feet tall, and uh, which is... I've, I've never heard another um, Jack the Ripper book where they would talk about, for example, his victim profile. And you think in a modern case, they were told you to do that. In a Ted Bundy book, they would do that. And yeah, and <laughs> it's something that's always been overlooked with the Jack the Ripper case. Uh, speaking of profiles, and this is something that uh, I think it, it's you, you get to it further, fur, further along in the book because it's, I think it occurs when there's just one of the murders occurs outside of the jurisdiction of the... Uh, I think it's an H division. Is H division the police? Yes, H division's Whitechapel. Yeah, yeah. And but there's one particular murder that ends up in the jurisdiction of another, a a new coroner and another superintendent. Mm -hmm. And it, I think you said that it was the first, like modern profiling of a criminal was actually. It was. It was actually. It was after the after the murder of Catherine Eddowes in Mitre Square, which was in City of London Police jurisdiction, whereas the rest, like you say, were in H division, Metropolitan Whitechapel. Uh, yes, yeah, so that, that particular murder, yes, he, he, if you actually go to the spot, I mean, it's only a five-minute walk from a bunch of the other spots, but that was kind of almost like he'd gone across state lines, but on a, on, a, on a smaller case. And then after that particular case, they brought in Dr. Bond, who was, he worked down uh, beside Big Ben, uh, Whitehall, which is A division, but he was seen as the expert who was there. So he was brought in after the, that particular murder. Uh, and yes, he was the one that ended, 
they said to him, go and investigate and write back to us and tell us everything you found out. And he wrote back to Scotland Yard. And the document that he sent back is now considered to be the first ever uh, yes, criminal profile of an uncaught serial well, killer. Which and it's fascinating, too, because when I was reading it, I was like, well, this looks just like something you would see a modern FBI agent write in a memo. Uh, mm-hmm. for, you know, yeah, to, uh, he's uh, way ahead of his time, that yeah. guy. It's just out of curiosity. What is the, the British equivalent of the FBI? Uh, well, I remember you'd have Scotland Yard would be kind of... Um, you, okay. have, have, you ever seen, have you ever seen New Scotland Yard on the team? There's always a policeman standing outside with that big spinning sign behind him. So like, those so are, like, got, those are um, like your federal police? Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know what the exact equivalent would be, but it's like uh, whenever there's a big case, Scotland Yard are on it. You know, if it's... Um, yeah, when, when, when they're after somebody, yes, Scotland Yard are on it. You know, something just occurred to me, and I realized why that was kind of a stupid question, is that... Uh, another thing that's in, in the states, you know, we have like it just the, the United States is just such a larger geographically, you yeah. know, place than we do. And so when things cross state lines, like how what you were saying earlier, that's why mm-hmm. things become FBI cases. And I feel like yeah. n- now that I'm thinking about it, I guess the UK would not really require an, an agency that <laughs> <laughs> like that would patrol no. 50 states that go all the way to Hawaii in Alaska. Well, when you hear um, like what's up to what way. The murder in Mitre Square. So imagine all, all the murders up until then yeah, were, were uh, Metropolitan, the H Division, Whitechapel. If you were to go from uh, the murder of Elizabeth Stride, for example, on Burner Street, which was the, when he did the two in one night, that was the early one, to walk from there to Mitre Square is about a 10 or 12-minute walk. And that, that was all it took. It, it, it's sort of like he's gone across state lines but on a very local scale. I mean, you've got... Um, when people talk about London, you have the city of London is like a square mile, and that's the oldest part. So when you hear about Henry VIII in London, it's not London like you see it today. It's the square mile, the old historic part, where until uh, fairly recently, lots of people used to live. So it, it borders on Whitechapel. So that was the time up until then, it had only really been H Division police chasing them. And once he sort of nips across that line, if you like, that then brought the, the city of London police in it as well. And uh, And... Actually, we really do need to get to this because I feel like it's so important uh, for understanding more about how this occurred and but where it was occurring and the and the like generally what life was like. And that's what was so interesting about this book is your book expands uh, far past just the account of the murders. It's full of all kinds of other history that I had previously known very little or nothing about, and uh, especially living conditions uh, in, in, in that area. Can you describe the East End of London around 1888 and what it was like to be a person living there? Because I had, I had been completely, had no knowledge of what it was like over the, over the poverty or, you know. Mm. Well, back, back in uh, Victorian times, there were two main slums uh, in, in London. One of them uh, was the East End, Whitechapel, most of that. Uh, very much the poor part of town, depending on where you lived, um, you had some people who were working poor, you know, you could have a job, but then some parts, there's no benefits system, there's no minimum wage. So you had Whitechapel and parts of Covent Garden were the two notorious slums. So with no minimum wage, no benefit system, uh, what you might find yourself doing, if you were living there, you would have either, uh, you could pay nightly and have like a, like a coffin almost shaped bed. So you might have a warehouse room with loads of beds in there, you would pay nightly, that would be your accommodation. Or if you've ever seen Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol, where Bob Cratchit and his family are all packed in that one room. Yeah. That's exactly what was going on uh, in Whitechapel. D- depending on 
where you live, so places like Dorset Street, uh, Thrall Street, Flower and Dean Street, seen as the worst ones. But other parts weren't too bad, but it was we were living in the slums. So there's 78,000 people uh, in Whitechapel, around 16,000 of them were homeless at the time. Some of you, you can't imagine what this was like. It's, um, so there was a letter I always thought was interesting, and it was written by um, it was the priest of the church who was living in Whitechapel, and he wrote to the, uh, the newspaper saying that having lived in Whitechapel for the last 30, 40 years, the recent murders aren't the worst thing we've had to live through. And I mean, yeah, yeah. You, you can't imagine how, how hard times were back in 1888. That's an interesting uh, part that happens too, because they, because, uh, you know, there's so many parts of the, what you've done a lot is weave together the actual accounts and the actual quotes of the people who were there. And there's mm. all these instances where there were people that were nearby the murders who said that, yes, I heard someone screaming murder or screaming help or whatever. Uh, but where I live, I hear that, that unusual. Yeah, they're like, I hear that. I hear that every night. I hear it's. It's. Mm. I don't get out of bed when I hear someone screaming murder because if I did, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I would be getting out of bed every five minutes. Yeah. So yeah. uh, I, I read one account where it was a. It was. It was some random case, and somebody had shouted murder, and exactly that. The woman had said uh, it happens all the time. Uh, usually, if I hear something like that, I would wait for a second one, or I'd wait for the police, and then if that didn't happen, I would ignore it. And I mean. I, Every, every night, there's fights and punch-ups and stabbings and shouts and screams. And for a lot of people living here, you just kind of got used to it, I suppose. It's also uh, crazy, like, the amount of just crimes committed with knives that, we you know, not mm. Jack the River, but just on a daily basis, how much people were just getting stabbed. And I believe it, yeah, you, you brought this up, but were the, the police were armed with, what, like a, a stick? Uh, Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> if you're getting out of line, you could bash you with a stick. I think in Victoria, depending on which uh, police force you were in, uh, you would have a yeah, truncheon, which is basically just a big stick to bash you with, a uh, pair of handcuffs, and a whistle. And that's about it. Yeah. And, oh, man. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's old school police work. <laughs> well, then, yeah, uh, they, must have, they must have had some tough cops back then, man, to just go into... Mm. Go to a place like Whitechapel, and they did the beats by themselves. You weren't with a partner, mm. right? You're just yeah. out there by uh, yourself. Some places you will be. They said there were some streets, like like Dorset Street, uh, for example. They said that one was known the police would go down in twos or threes. Because uh, it was that, it was allegedly that notorious down there. Even the police didn't want to walk down there by themselves. It was a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> people well, people often think of uh, <laughs> people often think of Victorian people as uh, you know these quaint, friendly Victorians. And it's not that long ago, and there were. There were some real scumbags living around here, and a few of the policemen walking around. I mean, everything you hear about today with the crime and the gangs with knives and all this thing, it's only 100 years ago. It's exactly the same. But because they've got a flat cap and a waistcoat on, people see it a different way. And it, there's all sorts of reports you read uh, from Whitechapel where I wouldn't leave the house after midnight without a loaded revolver. I mean, what the hell kind of neighborhood is this we're all living in? But that was the way you had to do it, I suppose. Uh, I kind of alluded to this earlier uh, that you took hundreds of historical records and weaved a cohesive narrative out of the results and coming from someone who has probably never written more than 5,000 words on a research project. Uh, and that's my, you know, my experience. Uh, how were you able to accomplish that? Like that um, level of perseverance. I think, I think, I think the way to do it was when you're writing, uh, something like that, it was to, I was never really focused on the whole book. You'd kind of focus on that one piece. You know what I mean? You'd write and think, right, when I've got this bit done, you'd focus on that. And then when that's done, right, that leads on to this. And, um, yeah, after that, it was just perseverance, to be honest. It was, um, 
plus I mean once you'd written half the book you were <laughs> you were going by then I think because it was something that I was so interested in anyway uh, uh, and a case I was kind of a case that fascinated me that much anyway uh, yeah I think that was just the, I think the motivation was if you bought a book on any other true crime guy Ted Bundy whoever it it reads like true crime you know brutal no messing about this is what's happening when you read a book on Jack the Ripper they tend to read like these silly ghost mysteries you know yeah. and, and the They'll miss out a bunch of details, and you think if this was a modern case, you would have mentioned that. And so I thought it was important to me uh, to write one as it actually happened. You know, this is a real thing. And uh, yes, I mean, once you'd started, you <laughs> you had to keep going. But I think it was because because I was that fascinated anyway that was what uh, yeah kept the dedication going to to get it done. I believe in. Uh in the beginning of the book where you do your thank yous, like uh, mm-hmm. you know, thank you to so-and-so, you said, and also thank you for putting up with the fact that I had talked about practically nothing else but this <laughs> book for the... Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Anytime anybody would phone and call on the phone, 30 seconds, I'm talking about Jack the Ripper again. <laughs> I mean, and I feel like, you know, just from reading the book, the, the level of research you were having to do and also like, I'm sure it must be very difficult to go into these uh, very old newspaper er- uh, newspaper archives mm. and find the information that you're actually looking for. And no, there's no telling how much you had to read to get to that point. Yeah. And so, well, I mean, to, to write something, like 95% of your writing is reading. You, you, you see what I mean? So yeah. you, you'd be so, I'm going to write that, that chapter where Jack Ripper does this. And actually, sometimes it might take all afternoon to find this one source, you know, when it's 130 years old. But you got to get, yeah, the vast majority of writing the book was reading through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Victorian reports and articles. and But it's all still there if you've got the, uh, you know, if you have the, the dedication and the time free uh, to go and do it. A lot of stuff's online as well now. You know, when you see those um, websites, you know, the ancestry.com and the find those family tree websites, like those can be pretty good as well. Like anything you ever do in your life that involves a form getting filled in. So you're born, you die, you join the army, you get arrested, whatever that goes into the, and it's all still there. If, you know, I just think uh, you just have to have the, the, the time and the dedication to sit there for months and months <laughs> digging, all, digging through it. You'd be amazed what's still sitting in the archives. Well, uh, well there's one thing I, that I particularly enjoyed, and it was that it was what I was saying when you would weave together these uh, accounts and from, yeah, from Victorian newspapers and what mm-hmm. other, other sources you were using, and you would uh, be able to like, create a narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, built out of quotes of the actual people, the participants, the actual people who were really there. And it's very mm-hmm. interesting to see it in that way because it's in their own words. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I thought that was important as well. Again, if you bought a, a modern true crime book, they would do that kind of thing. You know, you'd read the, the case and this witness said this. And, and I think these are details that, that people seem to miss out. And I, I think, uh, yeah, so it was kind of interesting when writing the book to think a lot of some of these people that you're talking about where he said this or this witness nobody's talked about these people in a hundred and odd years but they were they were important at the time so i thought if you if you're going to do the book do it properly so it was um yeah you get all the files get it all done and and eventually there it is i'm not gonna lie i actually not not too much uh but a, a few times i had to get the dictionary out for some of the right. words that the that uh some of the journalists of that time were using yeah I was like, "What is this?" But you, uh, you also, you did a great job of uh, of words that are not in common use anymore. Of just in parentheses saying what it was, which was very helpful. Yeah. It's like uh, something that amazed me when you're doing all that research as well. You read, there'll be some newspaper 
And at the time, this was considered a rag. You know, it was a rag tabloid. And yet the way that these journalists would write in there, they're so eloquent. You know, they'd, they'd be writing about some sleazy scandal, sex, death, murder story. But it's so eloquent. You think you don't see that anymore. Yeah. And, and, and this was considered so lowbrow at the time. And like I said, some of the words they use, it's, or, or you come across some words occasionally where you, you know what it means, but you've never heard anybody actually say that. And I mean, it's, uh, yeah, there's a certain quirkiness, all that, uh, Vic, there's a certain Victorian charm to some of it. It's as if though, uh, if a modern tabloid employed nothing but English scholars, yeah. and they're like, here, <laughs> or, uh, write about this absolutely bullshit celebrity scandal, but just write it beautifully and poetically. <laughs> I should bring that back. I want to read that in the newspaper again. And uh, speaking of mo- modern parallels, uh, there were so many modern parallels that I found in this book. Uh, uh, one that stood out to me the most, especially with what's going on right now in the world, is that there appeared to be the 19th century equivalent of internet trolls uh, during these murders mm-hmm. uh, with hundreds of people sending false information to the newspapers and to the police and countless people pretending to be Jack the Ripper themselves and sending letters claiming that they were him for, you know, what appears to me the same, the same reasons that internet trolls nowadays, why they do what they do. And uh, Mm. can you describe what was going on with that and how it may have affected the investigation? If it, if it even. For for those that don't know, as the the case, the reason that they call him Jack the Ripper in the first place is because these letters started turning up. Uh, to the police and the newspapers, and whoever was writing the letters was claiming to be the killer, kind of like the Zodiac case, but uh, a, lot, a long time before. But the, uh, there was a, a particularly famous letter arrived at the newspaper, signed Jack the Ripper. It's now referred to as the Dear Boss letter, and it was such a sensation in the newspaper. Uh, the, the police said every idiot in the country was writing Ripper letters. They said it'd become a national pastime. So, by like you say, Trolling, if there's that guy down the road, you want to wind him up or you don't like the police or you don't want to send them a ripple letter through the post. There's no way they're going to find out it's you. So of course, there were, there were so many of them. They'll turn up online. Uh, I saw one on, uh, on eBay a while ago, and a legit Jack the Ripper letter from 1888 on eBay. <laughs> Holy shit, <laughs> really? <laughs> there were thousands of them. I mean, it's written by some idiot in the middle of nowhere. It's completely, it's total nonsense, but it's a legit ripple. Next time I see one, I'm going to buy it. <laughs> But the police said, uh, it, yeah, it had become a national pastime, is what they said, and thousands of hours were poli- of police time were wasted. So if you get this letter in the post that says, I'm Jack the Ripper, I'm going to come and get you, they have to investigate this, and everybody was doing this. And meanwhile, you've got the actual killer is able to do what the hell he wants because the police are having to investigate all this nonsense. There's a bunch of other cases. Uh, but the, uh, are you familiar with the Yorkshire Ripper case? I'm not. In the UK. It was a guy, it was a guy called Peter Sutcliffe. I'll send you a a link, and that was another case in, in the 70s. Uh, but yeah, there was these there were fake letters turn up. There was these idiots pretending to be the killer, and it wasn't them. And um, yeah, I think that was that was kind of the first time that happened as well uh, with the Jack the Ripper case, because it was the first time you had a, a case like that in a modern city, sorry, in a major city, but with a modern press following him. So if you bought a newspaper in the 1830s, there was only a couple of newspapers that were very expensive. And, and all I really told you about was what your money was doing and yada, yada, yada. And then by the time you got up to the 1880s, you now had no taxes on the newspapers. This is when these penny dreadful sleaze tabloids appeared. So anything to do with letters turning up or a murder, it was the first time you had a case like that with such media attention on it. And that seemed to bring out the worst in a lot of people sending fake letters through the post and 
they said there was a surprising number of people in the area who not only would turn up at the police station drunk and pretend they're the killer, but actually walk around the streets terrorizing people because they think it's funny because everybody's on the lookout for the killer. And, I mean, the, the, one of the problems that the police said was that when looking for Jack the Ripper, there were so many guys in the Whitechapel area who vaguely fitted the description one way or the other, who for one reason or another were suspicious. Yeah. <laughs> they say, there were hundreds and hundreds of guys. They all look the same. How the hell are you supposed to tell who it is? Yeah, they're like, any guy with a, with a felt hat and a jacket. And they're like, that's him. But- every guy in the area. <laughs> so, <laughs> and of course, how many guys in the area had drunk or on drugs or inappropriate? And every night you'd be arresting guys. Is this him? Is it not? And, 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 and it's, uh, I just think an interesting thing to just point out is that a lot of people right now feel that this, uh, this internet trolling phenomenon that we're going through right now where you know people just get on the internet just with, with the sole purpose of just pissing people off mm-hmm. and spreading misinformation for, for no personal gain, really, just because they like to be an asshole. It's, you know, and if you think that's a modern and a, a brand new occurrence in humanity, it's not. You can just go back and look at the Jack the Ripper case <laughs> and look at how people were behaving back then. And it's, it's identical. It's the same behavior. As long as there's been people, there's been people being horrible to each other. It's, it's no <laughs> yeah. new thing at all. <laughs> so, I mean, so like, when, you, when, you say, when you see that internet troll guy and then you read the Jack, this is like his great granddad all those years ago. It's the same guy. <laughs> <laughs> it totally is, man. Oh shit! Um, and actually, I I was gonna say that there is an, another an enormous parallel that I found um, was that was that this was happening in the eighteen hundred or eighteen eighties, and it's happening now in America as uh, there was a call for police reform that was happening, uh, and and I, th- I feel like it's almost similar in some ways to what we have going on here in America with Black Lives Matter. And stuff like that, because mm-hmm. you know, there's uh, a lot of police brutality, and mm-hmm. uh, people want to reform the police or defund the police. Mm-hmm. And in this book, and I was unaware that this was, you know, but like you said, it, there's only so many themes in 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 humanity; they just keep repeating themselves. Yeah. That was a big well, thing. When, that was when, going you on. The, when you hear on the news today, the police are doing this, or the government are doing this, or when you're reading all those old Victorian, they're exactly the same. All the things people complain about today, it's the same things. <laughs> yeah, there was, uh, what was it in the the uh, the incident in Trafalgar Square? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they called it. The, it was the Bloody Sunday riot, wasn't it? And the um, Charles Warren, who was the chief of the Metropolitan Police, he was a very controversial kind of figure. So in the same way today, when they talk about police brutality, this was the exact charge they were leveling against him in the eighteen hundreds. There's been a, a protest march had gone on that had got a bit out of hand, and the the argument against him was he sent the police in on horseback just to smash everybody up, whether or not that was true. But this is the same sort of thing you hear now. Does this happen and the, the police were too violent or this and these? It's, it's come back in another 200 years. People will be complaining about the same things again. And, and the, the argument is almost identical. So like, uh, I guess, yeah, the, the, the guy, Warren, he was calling for more police powers and more, more mm-hmm. liberty with what a policeman can do. And, mm-hmm. But the public was saying the police were already too militarized they're already harassing us, they're already overstepping their boundaries. And then at the same time, and, and then there's the concern you've got the serial killer on the loose and not to mention other just, you know, petty murderers or murderers that are mm-hmm. doing it for a career. And they're saying like, well, we're not even allowed to stop and frisk people. And this shit mm-hmm. just is, we're still dealing with that in New York City right now is the uh-huh. video of the Something stop and frisk days. 
<laughs> Some things never change. <laughs> and I, I, this is not necessarily, I mean, clearly there's a parallel because you, you do uh, bring some quotes from some modern texts about serial killers, you know, that have taken place now that we have so much more forensic science, so much more psychological science and profiling is so much more uh, adept at getting to answers. Uh, how much did you use modern knowledge about serial killers to fill in the blanks that the police and investigators of that time did not have? Uh, frequently, uh, all the way through. So, like, I think um, sources are particularly used for that. Uh, right? There's a lot of the old, um, like the FBI uh, profile, like uh, Robert Wrestler, John Douglas, uh, Park Deets, Roy Hazelwood, uh, these kind of guys. A lot of I've got a I've got a very giant collection of creepy profiling books, and that that, that fascinates me. So I think it was important, um, yeah, to present the case with a with a modern look at it. And I think if you're going to do that, it was very important to use these methods. And so when what often happens is Jack Ripper does a crime or he does what he does, and then people sit around scratching their heads, going, "Why would he do that?" And you think in a modern case, they have lots of ideas why he would do that that were never mentioned before in Victorian times and Nobody ever seems to mention a Jack the Ripper book since. So I think it was, it was important, uh, yeah, to put that in. And then for, for the, the modern reader, if you like, to say this is what it means, this is what he's doing. It, it kind of, with the amount of things we know now, you're able to learn more about him than you ever would have been able to before, which I think, uh, yeah, it, it, all that stuff kind of fascinates me with, with the, the crime scene analysis and the profiling and stuff like that. And, and you never hear about that in a, in a Jack the Ripper book, which I think is a shame. So, that's uh, yeah. That's why it's all in there. And uh, you do begin chapters here and there with. Uh, oftentimes, they're uh, they begin with a quote from a mm-hmm. Victorian newspaper, but oftentimes they begin with a quote from a more modern serial killer. It is easy to see like how this could have easily been something that Jack the Ripper would have said had the, had he been mm-hmm. caught. You know, I think well, I'm, uh, I'm glad you, I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you said that because I, I deliberately put those bits in the beginning. So at the beginning. Of every quote, it's not just a serial killer, it's a serial killer describing how he did exactly what's about to happen. And the idea doing that, I kind of, I wanted people to realize when there's so much nonsense being written by Jack Ripper, this is a man doing this. It's not this big conspiracy, spooky ghost nonsense. He has all these other guys that have done the same thing. This is him telling you how he did it. And I wanted to really kind of reinforce that impression as you're reading through that this is a man walking around doing this. There's nothing supernatural or cons- you know big conspiracy theory going on and uh, yeah i think it, it was fascinating to me how many other cases there are that we know about where people have done these exact same things and we can see that all of those guys with the uh, the quote at the beginning of the book uh, are essentially jack the ripper he really is he's the same guy telling you how he did that and you, you, you don't really hear so many um parallels with modern cases when they're talking about victorian crime but uh, yeah, I, I, I'm glad you mentioned that. Not many people mention that. <laughs> well, I mean, like, I, I guess, and it's gonna be difficult for me to recall because there are very, very, I mean, there's so many quotes. I, I do recall there's one with uh, Richard Ramirez, mm-hmm. and it stands out because you know he's not a smart guy. He's not mm-hmm. gonna he's not gonna blow you away and go like you know I did this because I'm so. Uh, you know, this mm-hmm. is a, a weird thing that I think that happens a lot. It's people, uh, especially with Ted Bundy, he's the number one most ridiculously glorified. Killers that are like he was dashingly handsome and so fucking Mm. smart, and he like he He wasn't really he was not very smart, and you know like 
there was a movie that they made a movie out of him starring Zac Efron. And I was like, he does not look like Zac Efron. <laughs> no, but the, the, the thing the, that worked best, the, the thing that worked best, Ted Bundy, wasn't that he was such a devastatingly handsome man. He was a decent enough looking guy. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't, a, they always, um, you know, make out like he's some supermodel and he wasn't. The thing that worked out for Ted Bundy was that everything about his appearance, he had nothing in particular that stuck out. So whether he was a good looking guy or not, he didn't have a, you know, a big prominent nose or a big jawline or something. So what he was able to do every time he would commit a crime, get arrested and escape or do a run it, he was very, it was very easy for him to change his appearance and look like a completely different guy. So when you see his mug shots, the thing that stands out isn't at all what a handsome guy is. It's the fact there's 20 different mug shots. He looks like a different guy in all of them. So as soon as he grew a beard or shaved his head, he looked like a different guy. He could just blend on in, even if you were looking for him. And um, yeah, plus they always say um, uh, the man who represents himself has a fool for a client. And that was definitely Ted Bundy's thing. It was his, <laughs> it was, it was his own arrogance. And have you seen the courtroom footage where he's sitting in the courtroom where he, and he's in the dock with that big grin on his face? It makes you cringe. You think he, he thinks he's so clever, but he's not. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, wasn't he? He was like a law student at the time and he's like, I he got was. this. Oh, I got this, no problem. I can do this. But what I think what he wanted to do was get his face on the cameras and be the big star. You know, now that he was already the big star anyway, having escaped from uh, prison twice. And um, yeah, he did himself no favors in the courtroom. But <laughs> well, and you brought this up, and this is a thing that uh, it's a common occurrence uh, with a lot, like with a lot of people that you know they go, that are serial killers. I, I know there's different there's different types, but there is a certain thing that's very common and that's the desire for notoriety mm-hmm. and that could be you know clearly that was De- ted bundy's final oh, yes, very much, yeah. nail in the coffin for him but i mean that could also have been certainly the case with jack the ripper for because for all we know maybe one of the maybe one of those letters that got to the police or the newspapers could have been written by him for all you know, Absolutely. You know and just Absolutely. completely uh, hidden in the in the wave of all the all the trolls mm-hmm <laughs> or that, or like, uh, like you said that there were people uh, writing in chalk on walls mm-hmm. and, and claiming that in, as though Jack the Ripper had written it himself. But for all we know, mm-hmm. he might have done one himself. And for all we know, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, there's I don't want to get too too into because we'll get into some more of like who he may be. But I'm not going to ask you to uh, <laughs> reveal <laughs> your your deductions. Hold up! It's time for a very special announcement. Coming soon, my views are my own bonus episodes. My news are my own. Providing expert analysis of multinational news stories from around the flat earth and across the globe. With me, your host, Doug McDonald, and world-class correspondents. It's not the news you need, it's the news you deserve. So don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss out. And now back to the interview. Knowing what we know now, it's easy for us to understand that Jack the Ripper was just a man. Uh, however, this case has lent itself to plenty of supernatural theories, I'm sure. Uh, can you describe some of the reasons why people would have felt that this murder was something more akin to a phantom or a demon? You know, like at, at the time advantage. or in time since then? Uh, I mean, yeah, or w- while it was happening and in, in the time since then, people were believing that 
he was not just a man, but he was maybe something more supernatural. Like, um, I'm immediately reminded of uh, this, this thing called the Nemesis of Neglect. It was an old uh, cartoon from one of the newspapers, and it shows the phantom flying through the slums. Have you ever seen that one? I've not. It's, um, it's uh, it was an, an one of the newspapers at the time was saying, yes, he seems to just appear into the scene, do the deed, and disappear like he was never there. And so the idea is that there was a kind of supernatural element, but kind of there at the time, you know. I mean, people knew it was just a guy walking around, but when you would see things in the papers, there was, there was this phantom in the slums. But, uh, yeah, I think certainly in the time since then, and certainly in modern times when they're making movies, that's kind of when they start throwing extra stuff in there that wasn't actually there in the first place. So, you know, Sherlock Holmes makes an appearance. So there's, um, I mean, there were lots of things at the time where people were trying to, you know, hold seances to catch the killer. And I'm sure some people probably do that today as well. But oh, yeah. I, think, I think the supernatural element was kind of there at the beginning, but it, it's certainly been amplified a great deal with some of these in the books and the TV series and, and all that kind of stuff. Then. But yeah, like, like you say, it was, this is a man walking around. This is a real case, and it's not that long ago. There would never... Nobody would ever write a book about Ted Bundy and make it sound like this spooky ghost phantom mystery. It's something that just seems to be reserved only for Jack the Ripper. Um, this is a little bit embarrassing to say because I was reading, I mean, your book, which is very just, you know, uh, straightforward, full of facts, full of the information, full of what's actually happening. But even still, with some of the actual information, there were times where I was like, is this guy, does, is he like Batman? Does he have that ability to like, because, you know, in the Batman movies, you know, he's, like Batman says something to Commissioner Gordon and then he turns around and he's gone. He just poof disappears because he has ninja <laughs> skills. And there are times where, I mean, before, because uh, it all becomes more apparent as time goes by. You're like, well, he actually lives in the neighborhood. He's able to escape mm-hmm. easily because he can run mm-hmm. home. He doesn't live far from mm-hmm. where he's at. And he knows all the back alleys and he knows, he knows where the police are stationed. He knows mm-hmm. everything he needs to know to do this and get home. And also, he's a, he's a high risk. He's a risk taker. So mm-hmm. some of the stuff, it seems even more in, insane because he'll, he'll commit a murder in a very public place where a police constable could walk by any moment. But I guess he walks I, I quickly think, and runs home. Yeah, I think, I think something that people always overlook with that as well is the idea, in a, in a modern case, if that was happening, and you were committing your offenses in that way, in a modern case, it would imply either he's drunk, he's high as a kite, or he's mentally ill, which you think would be a given, but you think, well, look what he's doing. But you could be a serial killer and be sane and sensible. He's, he's not particularly nice. But Jack the Ripper, the fact that he commits his murders in such an exposed place where, like you say, anybody could come along at a point where the attack begins, anybody walking in the street, anybody, you know, any police coming by, the danger he's putting himself into, he seems to be oblivious to. It doesn't seem to bother him. You think if you've done a murder, run away, but he doesn't. He hangs around at the scene doing all this stuff. And the fact that he's unfazed at the enormous danger he's putting himself in here as he does this would imply he's mentally ill or he's drunk or he's on drugs, which it would never suggest in a Jack the Ripper case. If I told you that Richard Ramirez used to do drugs, who cares? Would, would anybody be surprised by that? But with Jack yeah. the Ripper, they don't want to hear it because they think he's got his top hat and this and that, whatever. Everybody else in the, in the area at the time was drunk and on drugs. It's like, it wasn't, wasn't Richard, Richard Ramirez. I was talking to someone the other day, and I said about uh, Ramirez. I read some interview with him, and he said he knew what he wanted to do, and he had 99% of the nerve to do it. So he would drive around in the car drinking vodka and smoking cocaine. Then, now he's in the mood. Now, he, now, now he's not scared anymore. He's going to do it. And I thought, this guy's exactly the same. 
That was another parallel I kind of, as you're doing all the research, it's another parallel to a modern case. And that makes it sound kind of modern, I suppose, when you say it like that, but nobody ever mentions it. And I think that's an important I think it, part. I think this actually does speak to an interesting thing, and it's, it's something that uh, <clears throat> occurred to me uh, several times while reading the book, how uh, my own uh, opinions and views about how I thought, how, how insanely different I thought 1888 was compared to mm. 2021 and how how uh, maybe I just erroneously thought people were so much less capable of mm-hmm. you know the, the thought that we're <laughs> capable of or also uh, you know or st- even stupid things like you're thinking like oh well drugs th- those came out in the 1960s they didn't you know it's like nope. they had drugs <laughs> man like what am I thinking I'm just like it just you know I'm reading it and it occurs to me I'm like yeah they had drugs like it wasn't like those weren't invented um, yeah, at Woodstock and when you read these I mean you read I mean there was so much stuff as well reading these old newspaper articles that you couldn't have put in the book. You know, I mean, the book could have been three feet wide if you put it all in it. So you'd be reading something and here's this, something and that, and here's a random story in the newspaper. And all the time, you know, when you're reading today, this guy got drunk and he got arrested or whatever, all of this, exactly everything you hear today is all going on in the Victoria newspaper. But the guy had a baller hat on at the time. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's the only difference. <laughs> and so the amount of things, especially in this area, or he's drunk, or he's on drugs, or he's having a fight, or he's doing this, or they're doing something they shouldn't be doing. And you, you think these, we, you, you can't at first get your brain around to these quaint Victorian people. This isn't, it's only somebody's great granddad. Everybody was drunk and fighting each other and doing all the nonsense they're doing today. <laughs> There's more different clothes. And um, I, I guess you said the, the language was different back then, but they did understand what they were dealing with when we were talking about. Uh, a disorganized killer versus an organized killer and organized mm-hmm. means you are that you premeditate and mm-hmm. and jack the ripper was both so he was a yes. mixed uh he, yeah it's like he displays characteristics that you got to yeah when when he commits his murders he seems to commit them he, he meets his victim randomly in the street he doesn't appear to have planned to do it in this particular spot it seems to be impulsive when he meets the, the victim does the murder, it's like at a random place in the street, completely impulsive, then he runs away. But he also shows signs um, of, of organized behavior. So he, he arrives at the crime scene with his own weapon, for example, and he takes it back with him afterwards. That implies that he, he, he premeditated this. He, he, he arrived at the scene with this weapon on him. It appears he, he left the house intending to do a murder. That, in its sense, is a premeditated trait, but the way he actually committed the crime was completely impulsively when he got an opportunity, which is kind of interesting as well. It's like he seems to have planned half of it, but made no effort at all as to how he's planning to get away with this or what he's going to do if somebody comes along while he's doing a murder in the streets for five minutes. And uh, when he's taking body parts out and taking them home or taking souvenirs from the crime scene, in a modern case, they would also consider that to be an organized trait because he's stealing these things because he knows it's going to give him pleasure at home to have these things. So it, it's an interesting case. There are, when you look at the crime scene, it's, it's sort of difficult to put them into one category. People like the, when you see Jeffrey Dahmer or somebody, he's the organized offender. And that's, you know, this guy, he, he seems to tick a whole bunch of boxes. Um, yes, he's, he's a mixed offender. Is in fact, yes, like you said, that's what we refer to him as today. And by the disorganizing, that's what we were talking about is how, uh, high risk he would how high risk the murders were for him and mm-hmm. one in, i mean all of them were 
Uh, one in particular that uh, st- they, I mean, the, they all stand out, but there's just one that I will bring up now. And I believe this was the victim. Her name was Alice and I'm not recalling yeah. her last name. Alice McKenzie. One, right? Alice McKenzie. And mm-hmm. that was in a tunnel, correct? The, where, uh, no, I think you're thinking Francis Coles was uh, in Swallow Gardens. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I got that mixed up. Uh, but that's an area where a police officer walks through that area every yeah. 20 minutes, something like that. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Like it was, it's uh, so something like that. Yeah. And the, and the, yeah, officer, it, the, the cop that found her body, he had, it's, it, I think what it was, he had been there 20 minutes prior. Mm-hmm. Like he had been there 20 minutes ago he walked around his beat. He came back, and there was the body. So mm. that is you like, are in, you, you are in fact thinking of uh, Alice McKenzie yes, in uh, in Castle Alley, and uh, yeah, that was another example. Another example, one of many in the case where he's done that, and you can't seem. It, it seems amazing. How can he possibly have done that and missed the police who were coming by? And I think luck. That's how he did it. Complete luck. I think he's turned up at the scene, possibly drunk or on drugs. He's looked around, he sees an opportunity, he's done it, and he's run. And he was lucky enough, again, that nobody came along. And um, the reason I brought up the, the reason I thought you were talking about the Francis Coles one, uh, is one where she was found in Swallow Gardens, which was the archway uh, beside the Tower of London. And as the policeman actually walked in on his beat, he said he could hear footsteps running out the alleyway at the other side. And then he walks into the middle, and then Francis Coles was found dead on the floor, but she was still alive at the time. And police protocol said you have to stay here and attempt to render aid with yeah. the victim to whoever that was. He had to let him run away. And then for the rest of his days, he was beating himself up, saying whoever that was, that was him. He was right there. I could hear him. And you think from the killer's point of view, he was incredibly lucky to get away with that. And then as, as is the case throughout the whole case. And so when that goes back to the thing when people say, oh, he must have been so clever. If he was so clever, he would have a better plan than I'll explode in the street and hope nobody comes along. And I, I yeah. just think it's sheer luck that he gets away with that. And, and yeah, that, that uh, Alice McKenzie is a prime example. You couldn't, even before the DNA and the fingerprints and the cameras or whatever, you couldn't have done that again, even in Victorian times. The idea you could do that and get away with it was against the odds. And the fact you can do yeah. eight of these murders and continue to get away with it, you couldn't do that again. But then even if you look... He was gambling, and it was incredible that he was able to gamble and and beat the house that many yes. times. Which you also might find, which you also might find exciting. Um, so you hear people say things, oh, well, look, look, the way he did the murders, he obviously wanted to get caught. You know, well, yeah, but he didn't, he didn't sit around at the scene waiting for the police to turn up. So, you know, it's, it's like in this, this danger and the fact that he's just getting away with it each time, he might find exciting as he's doing that. So you'll notice each murder, um, if you see the first murder, it's unpleasant. As the murders go on, they're getting more violent, they're getting more dangerous, they're getting riskier for him to pull off. And this might be part of his excitement, because from his point of view, his entire motivation is the murder. He doesn't know you personally. He doesn't have a, 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 a grudge against you for some reason. He only met you two minutes ago, and now you're dead. His whole motivation is to do that, so to keep that thrill going, that excitement going. As he's going through his offences, you're going to find they're getting more violent. They're getting more risky. Then he does two murders in one night. He's escalating as he's going on. And all of these factors, the fact that he just manages to miss the police, he might find exciting. So if he was to commit further offenses, it's getting riskier. Sometimes you'll find the serial killer and he gets arrested at his crime scene doing something really dumb. And he, he got too comfortable. You see, he, he has to get that bigger thrill every time and he pushes it too far and they catch him. 
and you think, but if you, if you Google now, uncaught serial killers, there's dozens of them all over the place. And, uh, yeah, Jack the Ripper, he, I think, luck is his best friend always. You couldn't have done that again. And I believe there was something that you uh, said, too, about uh, the, in the case where the, where the officer arrived on the scene, I mean, within a, one minute or two minutes of Jack the Ripper had, having just committed the murder, and hearing his footsteps running away, didn't that cause him to like? It would appear he was literally. Uh, if you actually go to Swallow Gardens, it's like a, like a railway arch, and it was split down the middle. Now, now they filled it all in, but yeah, it was on the right hand. Like, say, imagine a railway arch divided down the middle, so you've only got half the arch to walk in. If you see what I mean? Yeah. See, so the policeman it was a guy called Ernest Thompson. It was his first ever nighttime beat duty as well. He runs into Jack the Ripper. He turns <laughs> into Swallow Gardens, and he said, "But it was there was no lighting in the passageway." So say it's about 150 feet long, entirely pitch black, and he's got his lamp on. He was walking into and he says, as he got about halfway into the tunnel, he then realized there's somebody lying on the floor with the throat cut and paws up at this point. He said, he then heard somebody running for the other end of the dock. I mean, whoever this guy was, he must have been right there. But in the, in the pitch black, and it was, so they were both actually in the same passage at the time. And yet for the rest of his days, he was beating himself up, saying I could have caught him, but he was right there. Oh, yeah, he literally could have tackled him on the way out, yeah. He said he could literally hear footsteps running out of the other end of the passageway that he was halfway into at the time, and it's 150 feet long. And whoever this was, yeah, but whoever that was, it has to have been the killer. But he had to say was victim, and you think, from the killer's point of view, of all of the murders, that one, he was incredibly close to getting caught there, which I also think is interesting, in that it is, that would appear to be the last murder. So you think maybe that spooked him. Maybe he didn't like that. And you think that there are a number of reasons why, as a serial killer, you might stop killing. They always imply that you'll keep killing until you're caught, but I can name you 50, you didn't. And they would often say that sometimes if you're a serial killer, you think you can get away with it. I can do whatever I want. Then one day they get real close to catching you and you didn't see that coming. You thought you were too clever. Yeah. And then you didn't like that, that spooked you. You'll back off. And I think... That always struck me as interesting. Of all the Jack Ripper murders, that one's probably the least talked about now with all the books and stuff have been written. People tend to dance over those last murders. But also, yes, that one in particular, he was incredibly lucky to get away with that and you couldn't have done it again. I thought maybe that one possibly spooked him and that's why you don't hear from after that. Yeah, and I, I also you were bringing up at the time, like that's, you know, capital punishment was still very, very uh, common and... Mm-hmm. Uh, they were, you know, they were hanging uh, people kind of left and right at the time. So, you know, mm-hmm. he's he's almost getting caught at the same time. People are getting hung constantly for mm-hmm. much lesser offenses than his. And he, maybe he was just, mm-hmm. uh, you know what, like, <laughs> like, and I think you said there's other things that, that can happen, too, because there's there are the things that uh, trigger a killer. And there's also things that like mm-hmm. if those triggers cease to exist or uh, but yeah, there's what is it like if they come into uh confrontation with the police oftentimes that'll make them stop like mm-hmm. or like you said I mean, uh, a lot of it, I mean a lot of it can depend on the guy and his psychological makeup so it's like you, you might have some guys would react this way now another guy you know when you get some of them might keep all of his newspaper cuttings for example then another guy might have no interest in that at all so it's um you know, i've read some cases where with the police some of them would be fascinated in the police and some of them seem oblivious to the case that's going on around them yeah <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, there's one thing you know. Actually, I wasn't even going to bring it up, but right now I feel like I really want to in this because it's in the book and it's very interesting. Just that this this uh, was concurrent with another murderer, 
uh, called yes, the, 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 the embankment Emb- killer. Yeah, the embankment killer. And it's clearly not Jack the Ripper because they don't have the same MO and they don't have the same signature. Uh, is there any theory as to who that was or what was going on? I mean, I know, that, I know that he was not caught as well. Yeah, this, I mean, with Jack the Ripper, all the time you hear new names getting added to the suspect list. I've never heard anybody suggest a name for the embankment killer. Uh, I'd love to know who that was. It's, it's like there were, there were rumors at the time which was a conclusion I came to writing the book, but then I wasn't there. But the, the, one of the rumors was uh, that he was a policeman because there were a number of cases where, that, where there was um, two in particular. One of them, there was a dismembered torso was dumped in New Scotland Yard as they were building it. And I said, whoever had actually done the murder, taken this torso to dump it in the vaults of New Scotland Yard, that's outrageous. It's, it's like they're building the new FBI headquarters and I've dumped a dead guy in the bottom and they still can't catch me. And the fact that he was able to do that, some investigators were saying it would appear that whoever committed that murder was intimately acquainted with the formation of the building. Because they said he had to jump over the fence, then he had to get through the building site, then he had to go down, do this in the dark. Whoever did that, I reckon, surely must have been here before. And who else is going to be there at the, at the building of, of the new police headquarters? There was also a case about 10 years before uh, on Tottenham Court Road, where I used, I used to live right beside it. And the embankment killer uh, left body parts of this building, but appeared to have missed the police by seconds. Like, how could he possibly have done that? And one of the yeah, one of the rumors at the time, maybe he's a policeman, and that's how we knew about Scotland Yard, and that's how we knew about the police beats and and whatever. But I mean, that's I think that's the closest you're ever going to get to it. I'd love to know who the embankment killer was, and I think he's been uh, very overlooked in criminal history because if you were living here in the 1870s, that was a big deal. But once Jack Ripper came along. Everybody yeah. immediately forgot about that guy. They've never heard of him since. I think uh, I do think that the uh, theory of uh, policeman is pretty solid. It's, you know, when, yeah. especially when you talk about like what you just talked about uh, when he placed a, tor- a human torso in the construction site of New Scotland Yard that is, mm. you know, not like you know during the day covered with with workmen and also cops at all times. And yeah. you would have to yeah. know what it looks like. You would have to know where you're going. Uh, mm-hmm. and in addition to that, he had to carry a human torso into this building yep. and also bring it from. <laughs> yeah. And this, when they found this thing, it wasn't even like it was a fresh murder that he'd done two minutes ago. So this was a murder that had taken place days or weeks beforehand. And when they find the body in Scotland Yard, it's rancid, it's full of maggots. It's, it's been sitting decomposing somewhere. So not only did the guy have to do the murder, then take the body down to Scotland Yard to dump it there. Yes, we've done the murder had a place where he can keep the victim, so he's done it in the house, kept the victim there for at least a couple of weeks before she's in, then chopped her into bits, then carried this thing that would smell like you wouldn't believe. How did he even get it there? And then I think he must have, he must have had his own form of transport because, I mean, there's no way you're going to hail a cab and then stick this thing in the back. Yeah. So, the, yeah, the, 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 oh, I think all I could offer on the embankment killer is he would appear to have his own uh, uh, transport he appears to be collecting the victim's heads. He's across a large area in London, which in Victorian times, you know, you couldn't just go in your car and drive around, and he might have been a policeman. That, that's about all anybody can possibly tell you on the embankment killer. But, um, yeah, that, I, think, I, think, I think that guy in a lot of ways was worse than Jack the Ripper as well, which is kind of why. There's yeah. a bit where there was a woman called Elizabeth Jackson turned up murdered, um, and the... There was, you know, there was body parts. When they got enough of her body parts together, 
it turned out that where her hands had been her hands had been tied with a rope and her back looked like she'd been beaten and tortured and somebody had sawed off her legs and all this. And you think, whoever the hell this guy is, he sounds even worse. He sounds like he's picking up his victims somewhere, torturing them to death, dismembering them, keeping their heads, dumping decomposed body. It sounds like it's even worse than Jack the Ripper. And you think um, you think he'd be more known about than he is, especially a you know, Victorian London serial killer that bad. You think people would have heard about him. And he's, whenever people read the book and they hear the embankment killer, it's all news to them. They've never heard of this guy before. It's like a, a modern parallel where one, one particular story grabs all the headlines, the, all the media goes to this one particular story, and something equally as important, if not more important, is happening at the same time, and it's being completely ignored. And that could be like, because you know, Jack the Ripper was sensationalized. Everyone, you know, he said their national pastime was writing fake Jack the Ripper letters. And at the same time, we've got this brutal serial killer who's potentially worse than Jack the Ripper, just under the radar, being yeah, ignored by the media. Yeah, and he's away with 15 years. I think, uh, yeah, I would love to know who that guy is. And there's very few books written on him as well. It, it's kind of, um, I think this, I've got one book uh, on the embankment killer, but he, he's, he's pretty obscure. So I think something I liked writing the book was to kind of bring that case back as well, because I think we, usually anybody that, Everybody's heard of Jack the Ripper. You've never heard of the Embankment Killer. So I, had, I, I had never heard of the Embankment Killer. Mm. I, 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 I first of, learned of it from your book. <laughs> like I, I wanted the reader to, as you're reading through, not just other Ripper books go, oh, there was a murder, then a murder, then a murder. Here's a bunch of suspects. And I, I didn't want to do that. I wanted the reader to kind of read and feel like you're actually there. This is actually what happened. So there's a lot of, you know, Jack Ripper does this. And meanwhile, this thing was going on over there. And, you know, I wanted you to be able to, read and really feel like you're there. And of course, if you, if you were there, things like the embankment killer were a big deal at the time. And uh, so yeah, I thought it was important to get that back in. I'd love somebody else to write a proper book on the embankment killer. You definitely uh, succeeded at that, which you were just saying is like, there's so much information and things in there like, uh, you know, like the alcoholism at the time and, and uh, people like there's a, a, a particular instance where this woman uh, and she's hanging out in a, in a pub getting drunk. She's got a baby, you know, and I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, let, her, let her bring a baby in the bar. And then, uh, <laughs> and how they're always saying like, well, you know, we, we've got to open the, we've got to open the pubs at 5am for all the people coming mm -hmm. in to sell their wares from the country. So people can start, mm -hmm. you know, drinking pints and rum and whatever the, what they drank back then, like just getting drunk well, at 5am. You just mentioned there, the case you just mentioned there with the woman with the baby, it was one of them that I was thinking of before. So, so in that, in that report, it says she went into the pub and she had the baby. And I'm paraphrasing, but it's in the book. I remember that exact one. She goes in the pub and she's got the baby. Then she met some 70-year-old guy who said something to the effect of cover the baby up or something because the baby had no clothes on or something. So why is the baby gone? She told him to get lost and mind his own business. Then she told them that her husband, she was Jack the Ripper's wife. Then <laughs> the, uh, the policeman had followed her with this guy to the pub and the, the report said at that point they threw the baby on the ground and the pair behaved improperly. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, There's my nice. Victorian euphemism. There's a prime example. Here's some idiot in the pub, out of her face, drinking, shouting abuse at some guy, and then going around the back and doing things you shouldn't have been doing when the policeman saw you. Think, this is all the crazy kind of nonsense you would expect in a modern kind of society. Yeah. Drunken idiots. Well, you, you, for some reason, people can't imagine this, Victoria. It's exactly the same, but the guy's got a ball of heart and a mustache, and it's not that long ago. But those kind of kids, there were loads of them all the time. So this was the thing that the police had to deal with. 
every two minutes there's some drunken idiot or a fight or something crazy and you you're that swamped with all this nonsense going on. How are you ever going to find the killer? And I think I phrased it in, in a way so uh, it's not like a spoiler type thing if, if that it's going to be an issue. But uh, mm-hmm. through your research, you created a very convincing theory as to who the actual murderer was. Obviously, I'm not going to ask you to share the identity of the person on this podcast because obviously that is the payoff in the book and it gives the book a solid almost sense of closure. I know it's still a cold case and it's, you know, you didn't, you didn't say this is a definitive, I've proven it, but, but can you uh, describe how it was that you formed your suspicions and finally your strong opinion about the suspect? Firstly, when I was, when I first started researching the book, I was researching it. I was researching a guy called George Chapman originally, uh, who was a, he was a Victorian serial killer. They didn't arrest him until 1901, but he lived roughly in the same area at the time. And he, lit, he was a poisoner. But some people say, well, he was in the area and the poisonings are different. But, oh, he was there. It must have been him. I thought, well, I'm, I'm not convinced. But one way or the other, I'll, I'll find out. If it's him, I'll find out once and for all. So here I am researching George Chapman. And it was kind of, I thought, well, he, he could have done that. And he could theoretically have done that. But I don't see how the hell he did that. And there's no way he could have pulled that off. I don't think it's this guy. So I'm researching, um, keep going, and then he is this guy. And then here he is again in the newspaper. And who the hell is this guy? I've never heard of this guy before. And then researching through, and then here he is again. Now I'm looking at this guy, and I thought, if there was a single thing I'd found that was, you know, this looks suspicious, that looks suspicious, oh, but this, oh, I can't explain that. I would have put it in there, you know, if that is. And everything you find about this guy, he's the right age, he fits the right description, he's got a criminal record for all the things you'd expect a serial killer to have today. He was constantly injecting himself in the investigation. He believed, he stated that he'd met the killer and spoken to him on a couple of occasions. He said he met one of the victims. He claimed that the killer was writing letters to his house to threaten him and warn him of murders. He claimed the killer had written graffiti and chalk, which is another example of the graffiti and chalk that keeps coming throughout the case on the side of his house and claimed it was washed away before the police could see it. He turned up uninvited to the inquest of Francis Coles, demanding to be on the jury just when they were going to go view the body. In the I recall country. that did he, he got into a, uh, an argument with the coroner. Is that correct? He did. Yeah. So, so basically, the, the, uh, the inquest was about to take place. Everybody's there. This guy walks in the door. And as the, as the proceedings is taking place, okay, everybody, the jury are, are about to go and view the body in the mortuary. At this point, this guy jumps up. I want to be on the jury. I want to go there. You should let me do this because you are, you are, you are. And he caused such a big scene that the, uh, uh, the coroner told him if he didn't shut up and sit down, he was going to you know, throw him out of the room. And you think, in a modern case, there's, there's a number of red flags going off already. I think he just wants to see the body in the mortuary. His, his entire excitement is the murder. He wants to go and see that body in there. He also, he worked as a, an engraver, engraving sort of copper, plates for banknote printing or whatever. So something that everybody always seems to overlook that I always find interesting is the recurrence of the, the fake coins in the Jack the Ripper case. So when Annie, um, when Annie Chapman was murdered on Hanbury Street, the investigating police said that at least two farthings polished brightly and machined around the edges. It was said that were in the, uh, there was other women in the area. When Alice McKenzie was murdered, there was a farthing found underneath her. There was, I found four other women in the area who said they met this guy in the dark, he'd given them these coins, and then you'd gone down an alleyway and he'd attacked you and you'd screamed and ran away. But these coins were bogus and they'd been polished brightly, machined around the edges. 
like like if I give you a fake 50 in the dark at two in the morning when you're drunk, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So this particular guy, as an engraver, he would have had all the tools and the expertise and everything to do that to these coins. I mean, you couldn't sit in the house just carving up coins. And that's, what I was gonna say, that's, a, that's a specialty skill. Like not, yeah. not everyone can machine fake money, especially, especially you know, mm. co- coins. Yeah. If I take a quarter and I polish it super brightly and I change the outcome, how would you do this? You think this guy he had all these tools and everything to do this in the house. Then in 1889, which is um, the other Alice McKenzie was murdered, where the farthing was found with her, he was actually arrested, taken to court and charged with passing counterfeit coins exactly like that on two separate occasions. You think, what an incredible coincidence. And I'm convinced it, it, there's no way it's not this guy. He then goes to prison on a theft charge when he's in there. There's no murders happening. And there hadn't been one for a while, to be fair, by that point. But then when he comes out of uh, prison after three months, the magistrate that sent him to prison then got a letter in the post from Jack the Ripper with a piece of dried kidney in it saying that he was back and he was going to get him. You think, this is incredibly convenient as well. I'm convinced yeah. it's that guy. And I think, I think if this was a modern case happening now, there are so many red flags. And it's, it's circumstantial, but it's good circumstantial, and there's a lot of it. And I think he's absolutely the guy you would go and talk to. And nobody's ever suggested this guy before. He's just flown under the radar. And every book that comes out talks about the royal family or some nonsense. And I thought, this is the guy you need to look at. If, if they had had uh, the, yeah, uh, that's, how, that's how I came about finding him. If they'd had the modern uh, investigative tools that they have now, he would have absolutely gone straight to the top of the list. And mm-hmm. if they had been able to like search the premises of his dwelling, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I bet there's I, all sorts of things in there. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like I feel like you had me convinced. I'll, I'll say that. No, that was very much. <laughs> Right, um, I'm, I'm, usually when you get a Jack the Ripper suspect in a book, it'll be some stupid reason why they're claiming he's the killer. So they'll say, oh, well, this guy, 40 years later, he apparently said that he hated women once. Really? Well, that's, that, that's why you think he's the killer? I think it's the first time that there's actually a real suspect with real actual evidence against him. You can put him in the area, he, he, he ticks all these boxes, and um, yeah, I, I think it's... in. Certainly for my opinion's worth, I think it's the first time a real suspect has actually emerged. No nonsense with DNA claims and conspiracy things. He is a real guy that fits everything they said they were looking for that nobody's ever suggested before. And the way you, you put it forth in the book, I mean, I feel like you could bring that to a district attorney and be like, look at this. This is evidence. <laughs> you know, like, let's at Go least give me, give me the warrant. Uh, mm. But Mick, I have to say this. We are dangerously close to the lightning round, which is... The uh, lightning round. This is the part of the podcast where I ask you questions uh, super fast and you don't have time okay. to think. You just got a gut reaction, okay. first thing pops in your head. And are we talking yes or no or just like quick answers? So. Uh, there's a little uh, <laughs> little, little bit of both. There's, uh, okay. Uh, it's, kinda, it's got kind of, uh, yeah, it's, it's a mixed bag for sure. All good. Okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. All right. Lightning round beginning. Uh, first one. <clears throat> America is known as the land of opportunity, but it's also certainly a land of psychopaths. Do you have any plans of writing about any American serial killers? And if so, who? Uh, I'm writing a book at the moment called Active Shooter, which is on like the, the American, uh, like, you know, the, the, the Vegas massacre and uh, Columbine, these kind of events. I don't have any plans to write specifically on American serial killers at the moment, but I am writing a book on the, the shooting instances. Uh, that, that sounds actually amazing because, you know, as a matter of fact, too, that's so much more needed right now. Uh, yeah. Like... There's, I mean, there's already like, I mean, 
there's so many podcasts on these American serial killers and so many books on them. And right now, I, I think people need to, like, we do need more understanding about what's going on with these mass shootings because it's... Mm. Uh, and it's such a big, um, it was such a hot, I don't want to say hot topic, I don't know, you know, it's such a big deal at the moment. And um, yeah, that, that's another one that's fascinating to me. But yeah, I'll send you a chapter if you like, or I'll send you a, a sneak preview of what I've got going on there. I would love that. Please do. Oh, uh, lightning round, continuing. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I always forget this needs to, it's supposed to be fast, but I never do it. I never do it fast. It's always slow. All right. Uh, I would say that my favorite current uh, pop culture thing about serial killers and the psychology behind it is Mindhunter on Netflix. Um, is there anything on the subject in pop culture right now that you think is pretty cool? I'm going later on tonight. I'm going to watch that new Ramirez one. Everybody's been talking about it. Have you seen that on Netflix? The, the no, Night is, it a, is it a Netflix show? Uh, yeah, I, I think it's just called The Night Stalker, but it only came out a few days ago. Uh, yeah, and it's all about the Ramirez case. I think it's like a four-parter. So that, that's what I'm looking at. I think that'll be tonight's viewing, I think. I'll check that out, man. I, I didn't uh, even I'm know it's good. I hope it's not one of the things where it's only in London because that happens occasionally. Uh, don't think so. Um, don't, don't hold me to it, but I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> I think it should be on Netflix. <laughs> all right. Uh, then moving right on. This is, we're, we're actually kicking ass on lightning round. All right. Oh, here's a speaking of, we're going to, we're talking all about Netflix right now. Uh, when one Ottoman Whitechapel becomes a Netflix miniseries, will you put in a good word for me to try to get me cast as one of the constables in the show? Sure. Which one do you want to be? Oh <laughs> man. Who's uh, Aberlene? A- Aberlene? Aberlene? No problem. No problem. You, you, you consider it done. <laughs> oh, I, and uh, going back, just I have one question, uh, and also a thing that I didn't also I did not realize was that the IRA existed at, at this time period. But they were called the mm, IRA. Was the IRB? Yeah, yeah. I, it was I, a very Irish similar Republican thing. Brotherhood. Brotherhood. Yeah, but in, it, that's another thing. When when people think with um, like Victorian London, and oh, it, 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 it's not that long ago. So when you hear about armed gangs, and then you hear, oh, a, a terrorist set off a bomb. You can't imagine that happening in Victorian times. It happened all the time. And he was a, so in the 70s and 80s, like 1970s and 80s, when you had the IRA uh, with bomb attacks in London and things, 100 years before that, yeah, you had the IRB. So a lot of the, um, a lot of the detectives on the Jack Ripper case were seen as like these hotshot top cops had made names for themselves catching a bunch of those terrorists the year before. It certainly, certainly was the case with Abilene. And that's, yeah, that's why I was, that's why he st- stood out to me because Avalon was uh, originally he made his name and his his notoriety from catching uh, bombers, and then they're mm. like, "Well, this is the guy we're going to put on the Jack the Ripper case because he's clearly yep. the best we got, or whatever." Well, I mean, so, when he was on the case as well, they said when uh, people found out uh, that Avalon was on the case, the the bombers uh, they said it was death threats, nail bombs coming through the post. You can't imagine this in Victorian times. A mail bomb coming through the mail. Yeah, <laughs> and I said, you know, you think this would be a modern thing? No, it's not. It's a hundred and something years ago. As soon when they realised he was the lead detective, yeah, there was bombs going through the mail, bullets in the post, you know, death threats, and you can't imagine this in the quaint Victorian times. But this is what was going on. Yeah, we we think of mail bombs as as starting with uh, Ted Kaczynski, you know, the yep. Unabomber. You don't. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, he, he, uh, he has a long list of weirdos before him. As long as there's been people, there's been people killing each other. Uh, actually, I have a couple more questions that go along the same same vein. And this one is, uh, uh, obviously, Jack the Ripper is the, the villain, but I kind of worded this weird. Uh, aside from Jack the Ripper, who would you say would be the main, like the, the protagonist in a dramatization of your book? So if, if, like, if they were going to put it into like a, Netflix series, 
who would you choose to be like because you know it's always going to follow the story who would, who would it follow who, who would the thing follow like, who would be the main character yeah. what like would it follow Abilene kind of thing you mean and the murders are going who would be the main character we follow because you, you can't because uh, you can't follow Jack the Ripper because he's mm-hmm. a mystery so you I mean but in order to create a dramatization you'd have to you'd, someone would have to be a protagonist or at least yeah, I think you have to do. I've, I've seen a few cheesy ones, and usually they go with the usually they go with the police. It's, it's usually Edmund Reed or Abilene is the main character in the car. I think I think I probably have to stick with that. I think. <laughs> I think uh, I think Johnny Depp made a Jack the Ripper movie. He uh, did. It's called From Hell. Is is he, he out, is he Abilene? Who is he in that movie? He, he does. He plays Abilene in it, but there's a lot of artistic license in the movie. So if if you watch the movie, just watch a movie. No, it's cool. It's it's, it's a decent uh, movie, but. If you watch it to learn the facts of the case, my God, it's all over the place. Like uh, he, he plays, like the, he plays Abilene, who obviously was a real guy in you know uh, in charge of the case. But I think remembering from Hell, he plays a heroin smoking psychic Inspector Abilene. Oh, uh, <laughs> definitely wasn't in the original police force. So, you know, oh, there's there's a lot of artistic license going on. But it's, trying it's to okay, turn him into a. a... Uh, Sherlock Holmes character. Yeah, I, I, I think in the it's a long time ago. So, but I think I think he, you know, he smokes his stuff and has a vision of where the killer is going to strike next. And yes, obviously, none of this really happened. But it, you know, that does sound fun. I might watch that movie. Uh, I think when you go to check out, I tell you a worse one. You got to find. Um, it's called Terror at London Bridge. I think in the states it was called Bridge Through Time, and it was one of those, you know, those made for TV movies. Always suck. You know, they do like an hour yeah. a week or whatever. And so the, the movie starts out, we're in Whitechapel, it's 1888, Jack Ripper's murdering somebody in an alleyway. Then he runs and he ends up on London Bridge, like a mile and a half down the road, but he's run across the bridge apparently. Then, I can't remember how, but he falls in the river. <laughs> and then through this ridiculous series of events, he travels through time to 1988 Arizona, pops out in Arizona, he's on a murder rampage, and the chief of police is David Hasselhoff, and he has to go and catch him. I think this that sounds could fantastic. Be, it, 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 I'm sure in the States it's called Bridge Through Time. Bridge Through Time, Terror at London Bridge. That could be the worst movie I have ever seen. And it's a Jack the Ripper movie with a half in it. You know, it's proper Baywatch half, you know, with his tan and his pecs. Oh, I think oh hell yeah. It's terrible. I'm actually originally <laughs> from Arizona, so I think I might even right. enjoy that a little bit more. Just from, just I've, been there, I've been there. I've been to the, the Grand Canyon. I've been there. It's ago, but I did go there briefly. <laughs> um, okay, uh, Okay, one more on on this particular uh, line of questioning, and then I'll I'll stop it. Uh, but aside from casting me as a, as a constable in the dramatization of your book, uh, who else would you like to cast, and in what roles? And just you're totally free. Like let's you know, uh, let's just assume that you got uh, Michael Bay or Christopher Nolan is directing this, and you're going to get any any actor you want. I think if if you're gonna Right, if you're going to play Abilene, maybe we'd have to bring Johnny Depp back again, even though he's controversial at the moment, isn't he, Johnny Depp? I think we'll get him to play Edmund Reed this time. Maybe, I don't know, maybe we'll get somebody in that's totally off the wall. I'd have to think. I might have to get back to you. We'll, okay. we'll think. <laughs> well, I, I would love to work alongside Johnny Depp. Have you got any suggestions? <laughs> Johnny Depp? Yeah, well, Johnny Depp can play Edmund Reed then. And then we'll, uh, anybody else? Do you have any favorite actors we'll get sick in there? Uh, well, there's some, I can think of a few British actors I think would be good. And like, uh, I think, Jason Statham would be like a good hard right, yeah. ass. Uh, maybe like he could do a good, he could do a good Cockney accent in there as well. I'd imagine. Yeah, that might that might help. Uh, shit, I don't know who, but who would be? Do, would you even want to cast Jack the Ripper with like a? 
Like well, I think face. even if you did cast Jack the Ripper, you'd always just be like a shadow anyway, wouldn't you? you you'd probably not see his face full on to see what it was. Yeah. Well, this is what we should do. We'll, we should, we'll, we'll start casting. <laughs> see something uh, grossly inappropriate. Like, well, I mean, I've, alone in the middle. I've seen a newspaper sketch of who you and I both believe to be the lead suspect. Mm-hmm. And I could think of some guys that, ooh, man, maybe, nah, nah. If Russell Crowe could be much younger, Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Possibly. Possibly. He'd, He'd have to change his accent a bit. That Australian accent in the White Chapel slums would have to go. But uh, yeah. is he Australian or New Zealand? Uh, I think he's, he's New Zealand, is he? Is he? Uh, Something for me to Google when we're off. We'll figure it out. I'll find out. Yeah. <laughs> All right, man. Uh, you know what? I can't read what I wrote my last question to be. <laughs> <laughs> you should be a doctor. <laughs> I should be a doctor. Oh man. Uh, Oh, I know what this is. I know what this was. It was, it was actually, it was along the same line. It was literally what we were just discussing. I was going to just start uh, naming off people that I think could play Jack the Ripper in the film. And you okay. go, yes or a no. And just okay, go for it. Okay. Uh, Ed Sheeran. Possibly. Could, could, could do. Could hey, do. He's a bit, bit sh- I always get the impression he's a bit short, isn't he, Ed Sheeran? Yeah. Is Jack- and we're, we're looking for some guy around 5'9". Kind of. no, actually, that's all. Yeah, yeah. We'll put him in the maybe's. He's in the maybe's pile. Um, let me, let me think. <laughs> let me think. Uh, He's not going to sing in the movie, though, is he? We don't want him. He, he, we don't want him to be like too attractive, do we? Probably not. All right. But, but then, then again, Zac Efron played Ted Bundy, and everybody thought that was good. <laughs> I hated that. But uh, you know what? The, the big problem with Ed, with Ed Sheeran is I don't think you, you can get him to not sing. That's like the thing uh, yeah, contract. That's, the movie would take a downturn in the middle when, when he starts singing, I think. I, was one of, I remember uh, I, I used to be into Game of Thrones, and they had mm-hmm. the, and I, I think this was, a lot of people agree with me that this sucked, was they had this episode where Ed Sheeran is like one of the knights. And, right. like, I'm, like, and I'm like, who is, I'm like, God damn it, is that Ed Sheeran? And then he sits down at the campfire and he's like, it's time for one of me songs, boys. And it's like, oh, and he no. sings like an Ed Sheeran song. And it's just like, fuck this, man. <laughs> All right, Ed Sheeran, you're fired. You're not Jack the Ripper. <laughs> uh, Daniel Radcliffe. Uh, yeah, he could work. Another easy, easy. It would be a, it would be a change from the boy wizard to to Jack the Ripper. But yeah, he could go. He's been doing a lot I mean, of, he, more darker he, shit. We'd be filming in a lot of the same locations as well. They filmed a lot of the Harry Potter stuff in Whitechapel. It, it will be it will be easy for him. All right, you heard it here first. Daniel Radcliffe, you have beat out Ed Sheeran for the role of Jack the Ripper. The role of Jack the Ripper. One Autumn in White Chapel. <laughs> <Yep. laughs> All right, uh, Mick, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. It is thank you for having me on. It's been great. It's been fun. And also, uh, thank you for sending me your book, man. I got this autographed copy right here. It's actually, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so glad you like it. I'm so glad you like it. Uh, yeah, man, I, I, I love it. And also, uh, can you tell people... You know, like just where they can like where they can find you, check you out. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, if, if people want to, uh, if, if they've got an Instagram page at MP Priestley, uh, it's me, M P P R I E S T L E Y. It's me. If they a copy of the book, uh, they can go on rippleworld.net. Uh, all the copies are signed, they get sent out straight away. There's a, there's a Kindle version uh, as well. There's a lot of people like Kindles. So it's, you can go on there, you can download it, and get it sent straight out to you. I just wanted to say from, uh, some personal experiences. I just read this book. I just finished it yesterday. It took me, you know, I, re- I read it over the course of a week and really enjoyed it. So I just want to let everybody know that this is a fascinating book, especially if you're interested in this subject. 
And uh, yeah, like if you're looking for a cool new book to read in 2021, check this book out. It is called One Autumn in Whitechapel, and I loved it. So uh, thank you for sending that to me from all the way, all the way from I'm, London. I'm glad you liked it. I remember, I'm uh, glad you liked it. I think it's like you asked much. All right, Mick. Uh, thanks again, and I hope you have a great thank day. Thank you for having me on. Anytime, anytime. It's been great. Thank you for listening to My Views Are My Own. Our outro song today is Dune Mind by the Blacklight Velvets. If you want to contact me, you can check me out at myviewsaremyown.com or on Instagram at myviewsaremyown underscore podcast or on Twitter at myviews underscore podcast. Thanks for listening. Here's Dune Mind.